Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a hero of mine, a vocal hero to me, from the band Battery, from the band Ashes, and now of the band Be Well, Brian McTurnan is here on the show. My gosh, am I excited for you to hear this conversation. More on that in one second, but first, if you want to get in touch with me, use the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That and a Facebook page, as well as an Instagram account for Turned Out of Punk, are all run by my brother and show producer and normally guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram, at Damien. The best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that you enjoy this podcast. You can also support this podcast by uh, um, uh, getting over to turnedoutapunk.com and grabbing a t-shirt or uh, subscribing to it and rating it on your platform of choice or, or yeah. Thank you to everyone that does support this podcast. It is very much appreciated. We are well into our, I think, what is it? Eighth year now doing this. Holy. So uh, the fact that people are still enjoying this thing, still writing and still finding excitement in these episodes, you know, it keeps me going. So thank you for doing that. I play in a band called fucked up. You can find out more information about upcoming tours and shows at fucked up. Oh, dot cc sorry my phone <laughs> just went off there i don't know if you're that uh at fucked up dot cc uh we got some upcoming tour dates and shows coming up so you know check that out if you wouldn't uh if you want to you know uh all right on to today's show today on the show as i said off the top a legend and a vocal hero to me from the band battery from the band ashes and now from the band be well who have a brand new record or should I say EP, on Revelation Records. It is called Hello, Sun. You can pick it up now at your local record store or online. Check it on streaming services, as the like, as you would normally do. Uh, Brian is someone who I've, as I said off the top, have wanted to talk to for a very long time. Someone that has influenced me uh, vocally in a lot of ways. I'm a huge fan of a lot of records he's produced. He's produced a lot of key, key punk hardcore records and and other genres kind of branching out of that and, you know, remains someone who has, has always been uh, doing something uh, interesting in music. You can, uh, and, that, and that remains true with Be, Be Well. You can find out more for yourself when they are going out on tour with Newfound Glory and Four Years Strong. Yeah, more information can be found online and uh, just Google Be Well Hardcore, Google Be Well Band. And uh, there was lots more information on Revelation Records site. You know, you know, you know how to find this stuff. Uh, but that is it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Brian McTurnan on Turned Out a Punk. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, I have always wanted to be able to do this with you. And uh, we've never actually met in person. No, but but you did stage dive into me at the showplace in Buffalo, head first from stage when I saw Battery play. So I feel like we have connected on. Yeah, a, we have we have that connection. Yeah, cerebral <laughs> level even head <laughs> to head contact. You know, you can't fake that. Um, yeah, but we're gonna get there. But we gotta start off the way they all start off, which is Brian. How'd you get into punk? From the first time you ever came across it, I do. So, um, my brother came home one day with the suburbia movie 
when I was in fifth grade and it fucking blew my mind. And, and it's pretty embarrassing to say this now, but that what like we watched it over and over and then one night after we watched it like uh, my brother me my brother and a bunch of like our neighborhood friends we went out and we took all this these ketchup and mustard bottles and we're like went around the neighborhood and squirted ta on cars that was my entrance to the graffiti world as well Uh, (laughs) i wonder if like the vinegar and the ketchup and the mustard would have done like permanent damage like you could have been it could have it could have it could have i hadn't i hadn't thought about that but now i'm i'm i wish i hadn't said that no you're (laughs) now now you went all city with your graffiti in grade five (laughs) yeah that's right yeah so like the thing that was weird about it was we were already into like new wave like Depeche Mode and The Cure and Smith's Echo and the Bunny Men. And we had gotten hip to that from my brother's best friend's older sister. And then she gave him Suburbia. And then we were like, oh my God. I mean, I was just like, I think I've watched that thing so many times. It's the crazy thing is I watched it so many times. We watched it at my fifth grade birthday party. And now I think like, how the fuck did my parents let that happen? (laughs) Like, I just... Just totally insane. But I was then, I went down the rabbit hole of like, like my my mom, I remember like very soon after we watched that movie, my mom took my brother and I to the record store and we just like went, I mean, this was, this was the thing that was so cool about record stores. Like you could go and say, what should we buy? You know? And, and we ended up buying um, the dead Kennedys in God, we trust was, I think, but like our first shared punk album and we got home and it sounded so fucked up. We couldn't figure out what speed it was meant to be played at because <laughs> it sounded so crazy at both speeds. And, uh, and then that was it, man. that was my journey. And then I had this really crazy thing happen. So I got all into like, probably into the clothes before I really got too deep into the music and so i had like combat boots and i had this um i had this uh sex pistol shirt and i had this these jeans that i had like cut all these tears into and one day i'm just walking down the street and um i hear this voice. i'm wearing my sex pistol shirt and i hear this voice with a new zealand accent that says the sex pistols are bollocks (laughs) And I turned around and I'm like, what the fuck? And there was like this skinhead dude standing there. And turns out that this family had moved to my street. Then his dad was the ambassador from New Zealand. And he was this like hardcore skinhead dude. And we started hanging out and he started playing me all this music. And, um, and I just remember when he played me, like I loved the punk stuff but I didn't know how important lyrics were going to be to me. Mm. And then he played me seven seconds, walk together, rock together. And I was just like, holy fuck. This is, this is it. This is my shit right here. And that from that point on, it was like anything he could feed me that was like that kind of stuff. And then that, that summer um, I was still in fifth, I think I was 10 or 11 and that summer I went on like a swim team trip <laughs> and I got home and I said to my mom, where's Mike? And she's like, Oh, he went to the seven second show. And I'm like, what? 
So that guy, Jason, who had gotten us into that seven seconds played at the 930 club with Justice League. And he took my brother. And it's fucking insane that my parents let that. My brother was 12 or 13. And I was so crushed. So two weeks later, there was a matinee show. And that was my first show. And it was um, Uniform Choice, Soul Side, uh, Moral Discipline, and The Flaming Lips opened. What the hell? That's an amazing yeah. bill. It was crazy. And everybody sat down when The Flaming Lips played. <laughs> and uh, and it was crazy. And it was, I mean, I just remember just being like, so fucking like, this is it. This is, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for my whole life. And I, I remember I did my my first stage dive and I ended up back then circle pits were not like just a shtick, you know, it was mm-hmm. like, that's kind of how people danced at those shows. And I did a stage dive and I ended up getting passed all the way around the pit. Like everybody passed me off to the next person. And I got back to the front and my older brother pulled me down and was like, if you get hurt, mom's never going to let us come back again. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was it, man. We were just in it. And it was like, you know, every single show we went to, period. And I mean, it's very soon after that, by the time I was in seventh grade, we had an f- older friend that had a car. We were driving to Richmond, New York City, everywhere in Pennsylvania. If there was a hardcore show, we were there. And it was, it was fucking great, man. That's awesome. Did that kid from New Zealand play you any New Zealand stuff or is he just in American bands? No, at first he started playing me at first. He started playing me like GBH and Peter and the test two babies and, and um, stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, this is cool. And then it was like, then he played me agnostic front and I was like, Oh, I like this more. And he was like, wait, I think I'm understanding. And he kind of like made it his mission to like find Figure music it out. and, and then, and then, you know, he got us into, you know, fucking all the discord stuff. And I mean, at that point I had never heard minor threat, uh, you know, like he played as dag nasty. And I mean, he, he was a very, very cool guy. And the other thing was he was real scary. Like he was tough. <laughs> and so we went to all the shows with him and it was like, you know, nobody ever fucked with us. Well, yeah, because back then, like Baltimore shows and DC shows were kind of no joke, like for the hardcore crazy, stuff. Completely crazy. Actually, there's a there's a pretty the only show I ever went to that I we Jason, um, the New Zealand guy, took Mike, my my older brother and I to see Slapshot and the Straw Dogs, um, and there was like all these Nazis had shown up, and this there was this um this black Nazi skinhead mm-hmm. woman mm-hmm. in DC named lefty. That is like infamous. Uh, Very and, um, infamous. Yeah. And she was there and was stealing all these people's boots. Like off them. So it was just, yeah. Like making them t- take your boots off. I'm taking them like, and it was just a real wild scene. So this was a crazy, cra- I, and so I'm like 11, you know, and we, we, we get there, we walk into the hallway where like they're taking money at the door and Jason was like, this is a bad scene. I'm taking you guys to the Metro setting, you know? So we left and he took us to the Metro. But the crazy fucking thing about it was I had a roller skating party that night (laughs) and my dad was meant to pick me up at the show. So we missed each other and this is pre cell phone. So Mike and I are taking the Metro home and my dad drives to the show 
and goes inside because I don't come out. And it's just like, oh my God, what the fuck? Luckily, Jason found him and was like, no, they went home. But like, my parents were like, holy fucking shit. What is this punk rock? <laughs> it's it's amazing because like when you go to New Zealand, like obviously there's an incredible history of punk and like music that's there, but you like, you don't see too much sort of capital H hardcore. Like that guy would have had to have been like on a deep quest to find that stuff. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, you know, I kind of wish I was still in touch with him, but he had like a, I mean, he had a really deep, um, deep catalog of, you know, like, I mean, he, he was, he, he had some like really amazing records. And then I think also, I think the DC stuff, I think he moved here and just kind of got more mm. in, into that, um, that shit but that was the very exciting time to be in dc too i mean that was like the embrace right to spring thing was over by the time i started going to shows which breaks my heart because those are like those two records are like two of my favorites but soul side and swizz were really happening fugazi was just starting like it was just a very like the shows were really like it's you know like verbal assault i mean it was always playing like dc was just like this melting pot of punk and hardcore at the time. And um, I feel really lucky to have like come up in that. Yeah. Like, I think it's like the discord stuff is always the stuff that people talk about, but it's like, there's DSI records. There's all sorts of like weird other scenes, like Baltimore's got stuff going on. Oh yeah. It's just like, and it's all kind of close to, well, I guess for my mind, close together. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing is that um, like when I was coming up, it wasn't weird to have soul side and uniform choice play play it. You know what? That wasn't like a weird combination. And the moral discipline who opened was like, who played after um, flaming lips. They were like a skinhead band. And yeah. that was just the thing is punk and hardcore wasn't big enough to have it be the way it is now. Mm-hmm. It's like, you couldn't just be like, Oh, we're only going to play with bands that we sound like mm-hmm. because nobody would be there, you know? <laughs> yeah. And especially because it, you know, it's almost like there are these, it's like a, there are these blips where it gets really popular for a second. And then there's the, the shows can be all different types of shows or all different types of things. But in those, in those golf periods between those big up periods, you all got to band together because there's not enough people on your own. But, but even like the biggest bands, I mean, obviously Fugazi came in and just, it had changed everything. But like, I remember going to see um, Gorilla Biscuits for the first time. And at the time, it was one of the biggest hardcore shows I had been to, but it was only like 250 people. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, so just in perspective, like by the time, you know, by by the end of Battery's tenure as being a hardcore band in DC, I mean, we were drawing a lot more than that. I mean, it, but it was just relative to how big the scene was at the time. By the time that I was like actively playing music, hardcore had and punk and all of it had just gotten so much bigger than, than it had been when I was starting out. Yeah. Like it really does feel like from what everyone says, there's almost this like 83 to 85 drop off period for so many people. And yeah, there's like uh, you know, the, the indie rock stuff and everything kind of like springs out of that. But then like to be like a true, like hardcore kid, those would have been the yeah. lean years I could imagine. Yeah. And well, the thing, the thing that was cool was like, by the time, like I settled into the like 
New York hardcore stuff pretty quickly after that. But like within a year of going to shows, the whole like revelation thing was starting, you know, sick of it all. And all, all that stuff was really starting. And I got really into that. I mean, cause I, I found the lyrics. I was always like a big lyrics person and the punk punk stuff the you know, the like exploited GBH kind of stuff. I loved the aggressiveness of it and the energy of it, but it didn't speak to me as mm-hmm. like a human being. Mm-hmm. And so once, once I found like, you know, seven seconds and judge and gorilla biscuits and that stuff, I just really started to feel like, Oh, this feels like shit that I'm thinking, you know, not, not just like, it's not like some dress up thing. Yeah. Yeah. And also I found, and this was when I got into you guys later on, like when that sort of like what got labeled eventually the youth crew revival kind of happens, mm-hmm. it was very much the same sort of thing where all of a sudden there were these bands that were singing very directly about things yeah. like, you know, how much high school saw sucks and like the right. jocks in your right. high school right, right, right. Yeah, 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 and yeah. stuff, right? Like that was where I felt the same sort of thing, you know, like where it was like, oh, this isn't band singing about skateboarding in Southern California and things I, I'll never know. This is band singing about stuff that I can relate to. Yeah. I mean, and that's the coolest thing about, I think like it's, it's kind of doesn't surprise me that there's so many like old hardcore kids that are still like active in music or have gone on to be like successful. I mean, I just think there was like, really was that like DIY, there was that DIY um, ethic to it all, but there was also that like, you're seeing people that look like you doing things you dreamt of doing. And you felt like, I can do that too. Like, I'm not sure what fucking made me think when I was 14 years old that I should be like opening for sick of it all. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it was like, I don't know, Sammy Stiegler, pretty fucking young playing drums in, in judge, you know, like, I don't know. It's just, I mean, it, it, it's, I think the, I wonder sometimes now that like punk and hardcore and just independent music is so massive and so accessible in so many ways. Like, is there still that feeling like do do younger kids still have that like oh this dude looks like me and maybe i can do that i i don't know because i'm not i'm far from young (laughs) yeah no and i think so much has changed in the last two years like i'm intrigued to see what happens now you know for stuff where kids are going to come back out and start doing shows because i know in toronto like you know there's been two years without anything right so there's that changeover that kind of happens every two years in punk where you get the new kids coming in so i really wonder what happens now but yeah i was always amazed anytime i like wind up going to a show and and realizing like oh no it's still for kids that don't fit in and can't find what they're looking for on the internet i guess there's still this place which is always going to be like you're here might as well start a band yeah yeah which is awesome you Mm -hmm. know i think it's it's so cool. And it's cool that, I mean, it's weird. Cause I'm like, you know, it's been a minute since I've been in like a band that's playing at the VFW halls, but I see those videos and it's still like, it's so cool that that's like happening s- happens. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? It's yeah. just so cool. It's just, well, cause it's, there's like, so like every other genre. And I, I say this, I beat up on other music genres a lot, but like, but and there's obviously tons of problems with punk and hardcore, but like, there's just so much edifice that's put around like what it takes to get up on stage. Like you got to workshop for years, kid, you got to do this and do that. But yeah. like in punk, you can get up on stage two weeks later after hearing it for the first, that's what the Buzzcocks did. <laughs> right. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's also just like, it's like funny. So like the, I ended up singing in battery because, well, it's a long story, but I was dating this girl and her brother was in a band, a skinhead band with Ken Olden from battery. And Ken, I used to watch them practice. That's like really how I like learn to, you know, do everything. And then Ken had said to me, you know, I'm, I have a New York hardcore style band. If you want to come watch us practice. So on the weekends, I would go to his house, watch his band practice, but they didn't have a singer. So I started singing at practice and then they planned to get a singer and um, they went in to record a demo. And the engineer said, who sings? And they were like, oh, well, he sings at practice, but we're going to get a real singer. <laughs> so, so anyway, we, um, we're recording this. They're recording this demo. And the, and the engineer says, well, just sing. Just go in there and do it. And then I'll run it for them with and without vocals. But like, you're here. Let's just see what. It... So we did it. And it came out awesome. And then like the next day, I think. I went to see a show, I think it was Super Touch, and I gave the promoter, hey, I have a band, here's our demo. And he was like, you guys want to play with Stick of It All? And then it was like, yeah, and then that's it. And then that was it. So had you ever heard your voice recorded until no, that demo? No, never heard it. I never heard it. Wow, it that's crazy. awesome. So, yeah. and, and is that the demo that eventually becomes like the battery demo? Yep, that I Won't Fall CD and whatever. Yeah, yeah I was so I was in eighth grade then. That's wild. I had no idea you were that young when yeah. it started. Yeah, it was so in 1990. Yep, that was it. And interestingly, the guy that we recorded that with um, went on to produce the first Foo Fighters record. <laughs> so his name was Barrett Jones. And and so I, I, I don't know if it's true, but I like telling the story like this, that that it was recorded in Dave Grohl's basement. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it actually was Dave Grohl's basement, but it was definitely where Scream practiced and Barrett was Scream's sound guy. And I, I thought that they had said that it was Dave Grohl's house, but I, but whether it is or not, I'm saying that it is. Have you ever seen, have you, I know this is terrible for a podcast, but have you ever seen this box set, the Neapolitan box that Simple Machines put out? Because this has... Um, I'm trying to remember what band it is. I think it's called Slack, but it's Dave Grohl's first solo recordings that he did. Mm. And I think it's with that dude too. And it's there, like pre- I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. And I think that was in a basement back in, in Richmond area too, or something. Uh, uh, Upland Studios. Does it say that? Yeah, so let me look at, now I got to get the book out. Don't worry, I can edit this part out so people won't feel left out when they're listening at home. <laughs> <laughs> you can Google that shit. Yeah, they can Google it too. Let's look. They don't even credit Dave Grohl. Oh, late, and it was recorded at Upland Studios, Arlington, yep. Virginia. There you yep. go. Is this would yep, have been the exact same time, that. late 1990? Yep, that's exactly when we did it, May 1990. That's amazing. That's you know, yeah. that's what I love about this thing is like everyone is living on top of each other that winds up doing stuff in music and kind of all yeah. interconnected in a weird way. Yeah, and it was really cool actually because um, um, I had done the movie life records, and then when Vinny stopped doing the movie life and started doing I am the avalanche. They went and recorded with Barrett <laughs> and he was like, Oh, we recorded with Brian who recorded you. And he's like, I don't have any record. <laughs> <laughs> he changed your life. Imagine if he, he hadn't he told you to go in the studio. I know. Well, the, the, the interesting thing was 
I ended up leaving Battery after we only played two shows and the gall I had, I wanted to write my own lyrics and they didn't want me to. <laughs> and so I left the band. <laughs> I can understand having being that principled in grade eight. You know, you gotta have, you gotta have principles. I mean, the thing about it was I, uh, lyrics were like everything to me. And I was, and I, I was writing a ton of lyrics and I was really in, I, I, very soon after we recorded that battery demo, my, you know, I had like a pretty significant kind of mental health break. And um, I was getting in fights like all the time. And it was like getting, I ended up getting kicked out of school. And then my parents put me in a mental hospital. And that that's where I learned to play guitar. I had never played guitar before. So like when I would, I just literally sat there all day, every day, playing guitar, writing lyrics, writing riffs, doing all that shit. And um, they, those guys went on to start Worlds Collide mm -hmm. and battery just didn't exist anymore. And when I got out of the hospital, um, again, it's a really funny thing, but I, I went, it was like a week after I went out, I got out, I went to the, there's like that famous fugazi show that was down on the capitol like down on the the mall it's like a protest right that thing yeah it was right? like a pro protest yeah yeah and i i ended up running into this kid and he was like oh are you still doing are you still doing battery was called fury back then fury and i said no i you know i i didn't want to do that and he said well i'm i'm starting a new band if you want to try out to sing so I mean, this is so funny now to think about this because now he'd probably just airdrop me the songs, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but instead, if he wanted to show me the songs, we took the Metro and then two buses to the the drummer's house who ended up being Matt Squire. Oh, I don't know if you know him, but he was in Ashes with me. And then he's like a multi, multi-platinum producer now. He did like Panic at the Disco and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, long story short, he they played me the demos and I was like, and Matt had a, an eight track studio in his basement and which blew my mind. And um, he played me the demos and I was like, well, I can't sing over this, but I'll play guitar. I can play guitar. So we, uh, we I started playing guitar and then, and then this woman, Elena started singing and then we were called rise. And then we played two shows and then our bass player got struck by lightning whoa and died and died and died from it and died yeah it was oh my gosh fucked it was so fucked up and so yeah it was fucking it was all over the news it was everywhere i mean it was like the cover of the washington post i mean it was like national news yeah it was like he was at a lacrosse game and a storm came in and he ran under a tree and the lightning hit the tree and he was touching the tree and it just like oh my god fucking so so, so then, then we decided to not replace him and we moved our second guitar player to bass and that's became ashes, which was kind of like, in some ways, I think most people think of battery as like my pivotal band in my career, but it really was ashes. That was, um, I feel like we, we, you know, we, it was, it was like in battery, I didn't write music. You know what I mean? I was, I sang, but I was, ashes was like, it was like different. I've, I learned a lot about songwriting. We, we ended up playing with so many cool bands and meeting so many people that are still like huge part of my life now.
not to you know diminish ashes but i think for me the thing about battery that that you know i still listen to it and try and take from it is your delivery like that's what wow. i think separates it from any other like any other vocal performance on a hardcore record is like just the way you kind of like adjust pitch and adjust tone in songs like it's like it's amazing like it's just it really does convey like you know because like obviously hardcore is amazing for conveying anger but like trying right. to convey different emotions while still keeping up that aggression is like right something that I, I've, i'm fascinated by and struggled with doing yeah. and stuff and that's yeah. what i think that's the thing with the battery thing that i think resonates still yeah. well at least for me to this day well i love i mean i loved doing battery and so battery what was weird with battery was we we broke up for all that time and then that demo ended up coming out in Europe and it was at the end of ashes that battery started playing again. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, battery did a lot more than ashes. So, I mean, I, I understand it's, it's more that ashes, like I kind of like learned how to write and to play and to, you know, do the band thing that, and, um, but I loved doing battery and I love, I love fast hardcore. Like, I don't know. I'm such a sucker for it. Um, like even with the new stuff I'm doing, it's like, <laughs> some of my friends are like, why do you have to do that so fast? <laughs> like just makes my heart beat faster. I mean, I just, I love, I love fast punk and hardcore. I just love it. It's like, and you know, what's funny is it's harder for me to write that because yeah. I never wrote in battery, I Ken wrote everything and I just sang, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I, I always loved writing lyrics and I always loved singing and I love, you know, and I appreciate what you said. I, I, that, that means a lot to me. Um, so. Well, and also I gotta say not once again, to go back to ashes, that Yuletide comp is, is a classic seven inch compilation from the nineties, the, uh, spirit of solitude comp. Oh yeah. 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 I, what, <sighs> I think we just had a demo on that one. You do serenade on it. You're the opening track. Serenade. On it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then, but yeah, there... that was, that was a cool time, man. That was, it was that like all the seven inches and weird. I mean, I don't even remember how all that happened. Yeah. It's, it's amazing when you think about just, you know, like you're talking about the DIY thing. Like it's just amazing how many people started labels during that period, like started putting out wow. seven inches and like silk screening bags and, napkins and whatever to make covers well this is what's fucking crazy is the first tour i ever went on i was 15 and ashes went to the west coast <laughs> we flew out there and we couldn't even drive so the label people had to drive us from show <laughs> to show but that on that week tour we played with sensefield farside outspoken strife mean season unbroken face value game face wow i mean <laughs> like it was just fucking insane and it was like we're like oh shit yeah. <laughs> you know like we're just you know doing this crazy i mean we we uh we were too young to realize that we had no business doing any of what we did i mean that's kind of the story of my life because i ended up dropping out of high school and then I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to open a recording studio. <laughs> but it worked out that that was a pretty good decision in retrospect. I mean, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, it was, uh, but it's funny because you looking back, like, what the fuck was I thinking? You know what I mean? Like, 
it's amazing how many of you like, like we keep bringing up people that wind up doing production like how many of you guys were in addition to making music also concerned with the actual process of making the music and, and what goes into recording so i think part of it is well i think part for, for me it was that there were a lot of dc uh, people like jeff turner from gray matter and three we recorded the ashes demo with and eli janney who's girls against boys like was recording bands we knew like we had there was like proof of concept you know mm. that like you don't need this super fancy you could do this in a basement and it can come out and be you know ex, you know professional enough so and i think in a lot of other places there weren't those like 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 when I moved to Boston to like really open my studio, there was nothing like in rear or, you know, WGNS where like there weren't, there weren't places that if you were into like emo punk or hardcore where you could go and the person knew what you were going for, mm -hmm. you would have to go to the studio, some dude with, you know, a fucking mullet and whatever you got to play him the record you wanted to sound like, and he's trying to match it yeah. where the, the unfair advantage I had was I didn't really know what I was doing, but I knew the music and I knew what it was meant to sound like. So, yeah. So, I mean, I moved up, I moved up there and um, I dropped out of high school the same week. My wife got into Harvard <laughs> and I, you know, I moved into a house with um, it was me and um, Trey from death wish Pete from Mouthpiece, Ben Chusid, who was in Battery, Tenure Fight, and Bane, and this guy, Sweet Pete. And I literally, lit, I slept on the floor in the dining room. And even calling this basement a basement is like giving it credit it doesn't deserve. It was a cellar. And um, I just set up shop and just went for it. And I mean, I really had some lucky breaks with with the studio stuff but i think it's like you're saying like knowing the sound is is the key right because there's that's like such an annoying part of the 90s is going into a studio to record spending all this money and then having to spend two hours trying to explain why this band isn't a metal band to the person right. who's recording you well i i also lucked out in that when when i bought the like at that time was really the first time with ADATs and Mackie boards and some of this pro, this cheap. It was the first time you could get that stuff and it wasn't crazy expensive. Mm. So I was able to, for a fairly modest investment, buy stuff that was able to actually make, you know, I mean, I listen back to some of that stuff now and I'm, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure how we got it to be as cool as it was, you know what I mean? Well, it's crazy when it's you like, go through. Oh, sorry, go on. Oh, I was just saying, like, I was just on a podcast with the Texas is the reason seven inch. Mm -hmm. And I just think, like, I was 18. I had no fucking, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like. But, but by the time you're doing the Texas is the reason, you've already recorded like so many amazing records, you know? Like, yeah. like it's, it's you, well, because I guess you start so young that that Texas is the reasons that's already like well into you recording bands. You already recorded some of my favorite records by that point. I don't think so. What? So I don't think so. Because you had to follow through, right? Reason enough. 
uh, Tanner fight. That was that was all after Texas is the reason. Oh, that's all of the Texas reason. I apologize. Or though. some of it was mixed in. I mean, I don't know how all the dates lined up, but but basically, in I think Texas is the reason came in in like late '94, and at that point, I had recorded like Converge and Piebald and some of those Boston bands, but Texas those bands were not national bands at that time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and texas came in and um and it, it we recorded it and then it didn't come out for a long time so it could be that the release date of when that actually came out by the time it actually came out all of those other things had probably yeah. come out okay that makes um, more sense then so yeah i mean that and again that that was a um that was one of those things where I had just known all those guys from ashes playing with 108 and resurrection and split lip and like all the bands they were hanging with. And nobody thought that would come out good enough to be released. They just thought like, Oh, Brian has a studio. We'll go do a demo. And we just, we did it. And, and that, that was like a huge break for me. I mean, that, that was like, all of a sudden I had people calling me from like, around the country (laughs) like Mm. after like me basically begging people to come in and record demos with me it was like and and then people were kind of shocked when they'd show up and i was like 18 or 19 years old (laughs) is it like uh, was that a point where kind of like it starts pulling you away from because batteries touring at that point right like you guys uh, signed revelation 97 98 yeah so um the battery thing it was all kind of in the same it was all in the same peer like between 1994 and 1998 like i started the studio the studio's going well battery we did until the end in i think 90 95 or 96 nice. we recorded yeah. in nine nine we recorded in 95 it came out in 96 and very soon after we recorded until the end. I started uh, another band that you probably would have never heard of called Milltown. Mm-hmm. And we got caught up in the whole like major label bidding war thing. And we ended up signing Warner Brothers. And then Battery signed a revelation. And my production career was like going, going really well. Everything felt like, oh my God, this is just holy f- fucking shit like how is this happening and then there was a three-month period of time where i had gone i had because battery and milltown were doing so much i had taken two business partners on Mm. with the studio and so in a three-month win period of time my business partners completely fucked me over and i had to basically shut the studio down and start over with it Battery broke up and Milltown broke up. So I went from this like insane fucking riding this wave of perfectness to being like back in DC, living with in a group house, setting up the control room in the dining room and starting over. Yeah. And, and at that point, that's at that point, I was like, I'm going to focus on the production. I'm, and I thought I would never play music again. I definitely thought that. Was it just, well, cause you also did, I remember actually, I forget even what show I was at, but there was a roadie there that was telling us all about this demo that you had done. You and Jason had done this like hardcore demo that I think eventually came yeah. out. 
No, no, it didn't come out. It was called The Situation. Oh, yeah, I finally that, heard that, it eventually. That's what I'm thinking of. Then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we just got together one day and did that. And that was fun. And I and I, I liked doing that. I didn't love it. It was like, I thought it was cool, but I, it didn't make me, it didn't move the needle like, oh, I, I need to be doing this. And I was also like super, super focused on like, I, I, I really didn't, I kind of had like moved back to DC from Boston with like my tail between my legs a little bit, mm. like, and I really like, I really poured myself into records for, I mean, honestly, the next 15 years, but that, that year that I moved back to DC, um, I mean, we, and I was in this house, this house on Longfellow street in DC and, um, I mean, we did a lot of the Cave and Jupiter record there. We did Frotus. We watched Weapons. Did Movie Life this time next year. Drowning Man, Explosion, Flash, 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 Mile Marker, Engine Down. I mean, wow, <laughs> it's wild. You know, Reach the Sky, Pieball. I mean, <laughs> like all in a, a ten month, eight eight to ten month window. I mean, it was it was an exciting time. You know, mm -hmm. it was. Uh, and actually, you know, it's funny because I was talking to you about, um, I mentioned David Bazan being on your podcast. And when I lived in that house, I got a dog and we named him Pedro after <laughs> Pedro the Lion. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and uh, and actually he's on, if, if you've ever seen the movie Life This Time Next Year record, he's on the cover of that. Oh, that's the, the dog. And then actually David Bazan stayed with us and got to meet Pedro the dog. <laughs> And was very cool about it. Very excited about it. He's he, it's he's like one of those guys that, you know, I've only met him a few times, but every time I meet him, it's just so like reassuring that someone who's like that talented is still that chill and normal yeah. and, and balanced. It's, it's it's crazy. And actually, I'm kind of like I've had so many bad experiences with meeting people whose art I loved and then not liking the people and having it ruin it for me where he was like, you know, the opposite, you know, mm -hmm. it was like, he was such a sweetheart. And um, the funny thing is, so I had Pedro the dog and then I had Gee the cat. <laughs> and then I had another cat named Popeye. But the, so the really funny thing is when we were recording that Frodus record, um, somebody came, I can't remember who it was. But one of Jason's friends who was like best friends with Gee came by to like hang out and say hi. And I was like, all right, guys, we can't tell him this cat's name is Gee. <laughs> <laughs> so we all pretended the cat's name was Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty funny. So did, was there like how much interaction like you know you mentioned some of those guys recording some of the younger bands but like how much interaction was there between that sort of more established discord scene and and your younger scene that's happening um so i had i had um i think the bridge was amanda mckay mm. and the guys in swizz were always really nice to 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 me you know like 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 jason farrell and sean brown were always like for some reason, very super nice to me. And Amanda McKay was um, just super encouraging with the Ashes stuff. Like she would like critique it, you know, like heart kind of hard and, and, and was good. I mean, it was good to, to like, actually I found this some, um, and I just saw her recently and I told her about this, but 
the last Ashes record we had recorded, she had sent me a letter saying, I don't understand why you wanted it to be so produced. <laughs> and so I bought her um, Sense Field, Killed for Less, and I mailed it to her. And I said, because this is what we want to be doing. Like, we don't want to be like Fugazi. We, we were going for this. Uh, and she wrote me back, like, and so I have this letter on Discord letterhead that's like, oh, wow, I totally get this. This guy's voice is amazing. This, you know, it's just like, it was a different time. So she, she, but I had no, I had no interaction whatsoever with like the, you know, the, the older bands, you know, yeah. weird, like the Fugazi or what, actually the, um, the only interaction I've ever had with Ian Mackay is there was this really famous graffiti writer in DC called Cool Disco Dan mm -hmm. that um, that passed away. He, but he was like, I mean, a DC legend. Like they, they, the city now has Cool Disco Dan Day. Like he was that big of a deal. Yeah. And um, I was, I, I, I was had been really good friends with him. And so at his memorial service, I was one of his, the keynote speakers. And my wife and I are like about to walk out the door and I feel a tap on my back and I turn around and it's Ian McKay. And he was like, that was really great what you said. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> speechless. Well, it's, yeah. it's funny because like that has become such a part of like the hardcore experience is like going to the steps and taking your photo and, yeah. you know, like interacting with it and stuff like that. But like, the gulf between the younger hardcore scene and their scene must have been huge at that point, or it seems at least in retrospect well, huge. So, so it's really interesting actually, because I didn't talk to him at this, but there was a, um, there was a, the club that all the hardcore bands played in DC was called the Safari club. And the, these people did a book about the Safari club and DC public library had like a meet the authors thing mm -hmm. that I went to. And Ian McKay was there. And it was really interesting because he was so inquisitive about the book. Like he, ha he asked probably 80% of the questions <laughs> and it was very interesting because he said to the authors, he said, I feel like I really missed something important because we, when all this was happening, we were just looking for something totally different. Mm -hmm. And he said, I thought this stuff was a little bit silly, but now I realized that like what we were doing was not immediate enough for younger people. And I wish that I had paid a little more attention and taken all this in, appreciated it more when it was happening, which I thought was a very cool, um, a very cool perspective on, you know, to hear from him. So but he's definitely in the category of people that I don't want to know. And I'm sure he's a great guy, but yeah. I'm not risking my record collection. <laughs> finding out. Uh, no, I, cause it, to me, it, it always, you know, it's interesting to hear him come to it and admit it. Like it's, it's really cool that he did that because at the time watching it, like I, you know, I'd be like, this is this stuff that they're doing. is really cool, but there's all this amazing stuff that's happening yeah. around them and it just seems like it's separate but now in retrospect i'm almost like well if if they had gotten involved and had been there would that have stifled the youthful creativity or like would you would kids have even wanted that like a bunch of older people yeah i i think that it's 
yeah, I think it, it, I think it probably is for the best that they did their own thing mm-hmm. because I think that they definitely tread a new path. They, you know, they like, like you said, like, I think it would have gotten in the way of, of things. And, um, and it was interesting because then you, you did have like, like verbal assault to me was like a tween band. Like they were kind of hardcore band, but they were like, not too, you know, <laughs> yeah. like the best show I ever, that I ever gone to in my entire life was Fugazi, uh, verbal assault and soul side. And it was the most incredible like experience of of my life but it was weird because i had always seen verbal assault as like a hardcore band like to my mind they were a hardcore band and then all of a sudden they were playing like fugazi was never a hardcore band in my mind yeah they were like a discord band which is its own genre (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what what were the pit politics like at that show because you know like i imagine those bands the, the 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 politics well i mean just in terms of like moshing and dancing because i imagine like when fugazi's the, playing with like those types of bands kids want to kids want to do that it, it, the, those shows had the best kind of dancing i thought because it was just a lot of bouncing and bouncing into each other but it wasn't violent it yeah. was like very it was very positive and the um i remember that show specifically because i mean this is kind of crazy to say because it's like it's interesting because I have, I was in seventh grade then, but when my daughter was in seventh grade, her, you know, her outlook on like sexuality, you know, like being gay or being trans or is so, she knows all about it. I mean, she's mm-hmm. like, you know, she's could school me on everything. Well, I had never in my entire life before that show heard anybody talk about being gay as like, an okay thing to be you know what i mean like in the 90s it was like gay was a bad thing and ian um ian gave this speech like i think it was during suggestion i can't remember it's on it's on their their their, it's on instrument um and it was like the first time in my entire life that i had heard someone talk about being gay (laughs) like and and in and putting it in a perspective that was like holy shit like i don't know it sounds stupid but it's like you know it, it, at that time it was like people didn't talk about it and you realize like how much music kind of moved the need for me at least moved the needle with like my kind of my own internal like politics and like my like understanding of the world that I had never been exposed to before. And I remember saying to my brother, like, Ian's talking about gay people. <laughs> like yeah. I literally said it like, and it's kind of insane that it was so notable, but that was not something you would go see bands play and talk about. And I mean, I always took from all of those things, like it's important to write about things that like aren't talked about, you yeah. know? Well, I think, and like you're saying, like, you know, I've got a kid in seventh grade too, and very much in the same way, he could school me on a lot of stuff that the only reason I knew about is because of punk rock. Like the only reason I knew about is because I got a zine or medicated the show. And it just feels like, yeah, it's like an escape hatch from society. Like once you've got like, like, I, I think, I think about like, you know, like rights of spring taught me about my own 
personal feelings. <laughs> you know, seven seconds spoke to me about like humanity and like the people around me, like Fugazi informed my whole like political feeling bands like four walls falling was the first time I really heard people talk about like socioeconomic disparities. Like I, I just feel so grateful to have been so immersed in these with these forward thinking bands who were actually singing about, you know, like what was happening on the radio at that time was pour some sugar on me. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And, and so it might not seem radical now to be singing a song about like, you know, being like accepting and understanding of people's sexual preferences and, you know, but that was some fucking, that was some wild shit. Well, you could be openly and, homophobic and, back then and get a hit record, you know, like it was like just hundred percent. And, and like, I, I mean, you know, it's kind of embarrassing to say, but like, you know, people would say gay, like it was, I mean, I never even knew that that was like, I said it all the time. Like I, you know, it was like, it was just a different time and I'm, and I'm glad it's not like that. Yeah. Um, I guess going back to the very beginning, like who were prior to, you know, ashes and battery, like who were some of the other younger kid bands that were kind of going around them? Like far cry would far cry have already been going by the time. Um, Far cry was like right about the same, you know, the same, like far cry was happening while ashes was happening. And um, like actually the drummer from ashes dated the singer from far cry's sister. Okay. Like we're all inter intermingled. Um, I mean, it was our friend group that were the DC local bands. You know, it was Battery, Ashes, Damnation, Worlds Collide, Darkest Hour, Frotus. Those were the those were the young those were the young DC bands then. Really. It's got, I guess, with like Worlds Collide and Battery, there's obviously like some vague sonic similarities, but like none of those other bands sound at all alike. Like that's kind of no, cool. no. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, a, it was a cool, it, the thing that I loved about that era period is that the idea of wanting to start a band that sounded like someone else's band, it wasn't, I mean, I had no interest in, I mean, yeah. no, but that was like frowned upon. Like you wanted to do something different. Like, you know, it was, um, and it's, 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 so, yeah. So, I mean, DC, it was an exciting time. And then I, I, um, I feel really lucky because like those people that were in that world were all so talented. Like I always think about like, I thought I was a good skateboarder for a long time because I was the best of my friend group. And then one day I saw some like real skateboarders and realized like, I'm still fucking bad. And I never skated again, you know, <laughs> where with music, I mean, the people that I was coming up with, you know, Matt Squire fucking writes songs for like Ariana Grande now. I mean, like yeah. Ken Olden's like Battery, Damnation, Worlds Collide. I mean, he's just one of the best guitar players and songwriters I've ever, after 30 years later, still one of the best I've ever come across. So I feel like I was really lucky because the people I was around were so good. I what I expect when I started recording bands, what I was expecting from people was that, you know, like mm. another level than they thought was possible. And, and I wouldn't have known that was possible if I hadn't come up with so many like talented people. 
I think that's the one thing that does always stay the same about this. Like the music styles that people are playing in punk and hardcore might change, but like it does remain to be this beacon for talented, interesting people that wind up doing amazing things later on in life. Because I, I guess like you're saying, it's like the DIY thing that attracts all these people that are self-starters and just, you know, it, it just never ends how many interesting people are at these little tiny shows with 30 people. Yeah. And it, and, and honestly, it's not, it, it wasn't only the, um, the bands. I mean, it's like the photographers and the writers and the, you know, like the videographers, like, you know, like, um, the guy, um, the guy that was Ashes roadie, Roger Gassman. I don't know if you know who that is, but he's, he's like a world renowned art person. Now he does that beyond the streets. Oh, I, I think beyond yeah. streets. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a huge street art. Um, he's had it in LA, New York. Now he's doing it in Shanghai, you know, like the, the, you know, like we, it was just a, it was just a, it was a talented pool of people. And I feel like everybody was, it wasn't competitive, but it's like people kept out doing each other and that bar just kept rising and people kept rising to it. And kind of, I think we all woke up one day and we're like, oh, wow, <laughs> we're actually doing something meaningful people yeah. care you know people care about this it's matters you know like you we're talking about battery record from 1995 you know now <laughs> yeah. i mean that's cool as shit right yeah, that's like amazing you know um well also like yeah like amy was there lita uh amy dumas was also uh lived at a house with you guys and now she's a hall of famer in the wwe hall of fame for wrestling yes yes so she, I didn't live in that house, but she lived there with, I think, my brother and Ken. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That's what and she Ma said. Mike, Mike was just telling me that the other day that he was, he saw her on, she was a sweetheart always, but he, she, he, he saw her on some wrestling thing and she had a seven seconds pin on. Yeah. And he got real, real excited about that. She roadied for 15. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen her in forever because the thing is, I was much, I was, I was four or five years younger than Ken, Ken mm -hmm. Oldham was. So it wasn't like we weren't friends, but there was definitely like, a, I mean, that's a, that's not a big difference now, but when you're one, when somebody's 15 and somebody's 20, that is, Oh, it's huge. <laughs> that's a, that's a big difference. That's a yeah. big difference. Then. So, yeah. Well, she, she's a, it was amazing talking to her because she did some bands with some people from slant six and was that, but then wow. also talked about how much battery meant to her. And like, so she felt wow. like she was someone who was trying to be in both of these scenes, but talked also how disparate it was. Like it was like very much to, you know, like hardcore kids versus, you know, indie rock adults almost. Yeah. 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 That's so interesting. Well, I'm glad she's doing well. Mike fills me in about her all the time. Yeah. Which is do you know my brother, Mike? I'm, I'm a huge Damnation AD fan, but we've never met. I'm a, okay. He's a huge vocal influence. I love any song where it's the two of you on the song together. Woo! That's my yeah. favorite. That's my he, favorite. He, 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 he's amazing. He's such a great guy, man. He's, he's, he's fantastic. Oh, how much interaction did, you know, the scene that you guys are a part of have with like gut instinct in that whole world? Um, so gut instinct i mean i loved gut instinct um but i think that by the time battery was like really fully happening gut instinct might have been broken up okay but um, but I, I i i love gut instinct and actually i see those guys 
um, JR from Next Step Up is like one of my neighbors. <laughs> so he still hangs with all those guys all the time. And uh, and sometimes I'll like see them at the neighborhood pool. <laughs> <laughs> I got but to I open for still... them one time. Oh, really? At the reunion st- show. Oh, I still, you know, it's a, bats, bottles, bodies, blood, violence, police, billy clubs. Yeah, I thought I, hook, right? I, yeah, I thought I had seen some violent shows, but that reunion show was very violent, uh, dude. But Baltimore was fucking insane back then. I mean, it was terrifying, and the dudes that uh, <laughs> I don't know if they they I don't think they called themselves this, but my crew always called all the Baltimore guys the Brown Bag Posse because <laughs> there was a there's rumor that they would like put brown bags over people's heads and beat the shit. Out of them. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> but yeah. the funny thing about like jr and i hope he's not listening to this but it's like funny because it's like i'll see him at the pool and I'll, I'll be like with my daughter and you know and he'll be like remember that time <laughs> when, <laughs> and i'm like ah let's it, not talk about that right now yeah it was definitely there's there's so many legends about them and I guess whatever the crew that's surrounded them at that time, that it's become like, it's, it's one of those things that like there's these things that almost become folklore in hardcore. Like there's certain scenes, certain bands and certain scenes. Well, DC and Baltimore were straight up violent as fuck, like crazy, crazy violent when we were coming up. Like there's, there was this one show um, and it was crazy. Tim Owen from Jade tree drove my brother and I to this, it was Warzone and Youth Defense League at the Wust Hall, which is now the 930 Club. Whoa. And back then, it was the worst neighborhood. It was so fucking bad. And a full-on riot broke out, like in the streets, people breaking bottles. And Tim left us. <laughs> so my brother and I had to, we ran across the street to this Roy Rogers, which is like a fast food burger place, but they had locked the doors and we're banging on the doors like, please let us in. And they finally let us in. And at like two o'clock in the morning, my mom had to drive down there and pick us up. And there's like people getting arrested and glass everywhere and police. And, but she kept letting us go to fucking shows. Yeah. Like they must've been like, well, cause I guess you guys were like responsible young kids coming home. Like, it's not like you guys were like, you know, bleeding and everything, I guess. I mean, I don't, you know, it's really hard to know because my parents were so fucking tuned out. I just think like they just weren't paying enough. To, I have no idea what they were thinking. Like I, I, I mean, I love my daughter. I trust my daughter. There's no chance she's going to West Baltimore at two o'clock in the morning by yourself to see a show right now, you know, well, I kind of wonder that too, with my, my son, cause he's at the age now where I started going to shows, my eldest. Right. And I'm like, but it's not even like he has the interest. Like I would be fighting my parents. Like eventually they had to capitulate. Yeah. Cause I would always be like, come on, let me see this band. Let me see this band. Right. But right. I don't, I don't know if they, there's just not the same sort of pull for kids these days. It seems like for young kids like this, I guess. I mean, you know, it's hard. It's I don't know it. My daughter and her friends are not into underground music at all. Like they they don't go to shows. They don't. But they're from time to time. I'll go to shows and I will see some young kids. So Mm -hmm. I don't it could just be like 
I mean, I think part of it is that I found, I sought out this music because I had such a troubled home life for me. That was the draw for me with all of this. And I didn't really have, and I hate to say I didn't have parental figures, but I didn't, (laughs) you know, like my whole like punk and hardcore was my religion. Like it was how I learned to be a human being. And, um, and I, I think I was so passionate about it because I didn't have guidance in other aspects of my life. Um, and my daughter is, you know, it's a very, it's a very different situation that she's growing up in. I, I definitely feel like you're saying like this can become, you know, like it fills the role of religion, not to say that it's like a cult thing, but like you're saying, like this socializes you and teaches you like a moral code in the same way kids growing up with religion would have given like, you know, however corrupt that moral code might've actually been, but it would have right. received a moral code from religion. Like, like we're saying, we got it from these other people. Like our religious leaders were the Ian McKay's and the, you know, right. the, the, the crasses and all this of the world. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's interesting. And for me, that's kind of always what the draw with lyrics were, which was like, I mean, it's so funny because I, every, I think it was every Tuesday records would come out and I would go to the store and buy whatever came out. And by the time I got home on the bus, I already knew the words, the songs, you know what I mean? I I would read the every word. I would kind of try and picture what's this song going to sound like. And I knew what songs I wanted to listen to based on the lyrics. And, and that's another thing that's is, a, I know people buy vinyl now again, but like the way that people listen to music now, I think has changed the, the just not having the lyrics sheet and not having to, um, I think all the time about like, I mean, I was always wanting new music. So whatever I bought on Tuesday, I was listening to until the next Tuesday, no matter how much I liked it or not. And I don't know that I would ever give records that much of a chance now that I have a thousand records in my pocket at any given second. You know, like a perfect example of that is I went and I bought the Operation Ivy record because there was an X on the cover and I thought it was a straight edge band. Yeah, that's awesome. And I got home and was like, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. This is fucking awful. And by the end of the week, I could not take the fucking thing off. You know, it was just like the only thing in the world I wanted to listen to. And thank God it wasn't on Spotify. Cause I would have been like, Nope, mm-hmm. moving on, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Like you had to, it's, it's, but it's not even like, I think people even want to change. Like, it's like, you can't afford to spend time with something anymore because the zeitgeist has move on, moved on to like this next record. And you're like, oh, okay, well, I guess I got to move on to this next record and listen to that so I can stay in the conversation. Like, it really does feel yeah. like you're not, there's, you're not even given the time to spend time with these records anymore. The other thing that's weird about now is that I have a ton of music that I listen to that I don't even know who it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's on a playlist and I hit the heart button or I add it to a playlist and then, I'll be driving to the van. The guys in my band will be like, what is this? And I'm like, I'm not sure. Hold on. You know, <laughs> it's just, but when I was coming up into music, I could tell you every single band name member's name and where they were from. And, you know, I mean, I knew everything about everything. And uh, now I'm kind of like, I don't know. It's a song I like. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just, it's like you're saying, like, this is one of those things that you don't even have time to even learn the band name. 
because there's right. like another song that's waiting for you to hear it like two minutes later. Right. Yes. The whole Spotify thing is crazy to me because it's like, I have friends that are artists that do. I have a friend that has a band on, you know, they, they, they have like 40 million plays of multiple songs and they can't draw a hundred people. Yeah. You yeah. Know? It's really weird how that works now. And then you have other bands like the strike anywheres of the world that don't stream very well, but fucking pack out. Yeah. Every, every, you know, it's just a, the, none of these metrics make any sense to me. And I kind of hate that there even are those metrics. Like if I, it's embarrassing to even think about how many bands I have been like in the studio with, and they're trying to figure out who's going to go on tour. And they're like, how many followers do they have? (laughs) How many plays do they have? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I just wish that stuff wasn't there. It's like, love the music. Well, now, because it's now it's all quantifiable, right? Like now it's like, oh yeah, you're this popular. This is how, but, but you're like, you're saying there's like, like there's some bands that, you know, people will travel for people will go and see them every time. And then there's like, I was watching a YouTube show with my kids today and the guy brought up like how he's got like a, a measly following on YouTube of 3.5 million followers. And I'm just like trying to compute like most of the bands I like never sold more than a thousand copies of a record, maybe 5,000 right. copies. And it's just, yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing. The impact well, this stuff had. Yeah. I mean, but it's also like, I, I, it, it's weird too, because when you think about like the metrics, like the interesting thing about what bands matter later is, is that isn't decided now that it definitely isn't decided by unique monthly listeners. It's decided 20 years from now, mm-hmm. whether people still care about it. And it's just, a, I, I don't know. I mean, I, for me, what's interesting as like a producer and all this stuff is a lot of the stuff I'm most in love with that and proud of that I did in my life isn't necessarily the stuff that was the biggest anyway, you know, like it's, I don't know, these kind of like ways that success is <laughs> defined now is just so odd to me. Yeah. Like, well, it's like, you know, you brought up that Operation Ivy record, you know, like no one would ever argue that Nirvana is not like the more influential band, but you got to think like that Operation Ivy record, like, Every, that changed sound like kids changed their way their sound and, the, and those bands sold tons of records so right I don't know, i've always been like yeah sure if you look at the numbers like no way nirvana is less influential than operation ivy but if you look at like the the way music went it's like operation ivy kind of changed everything in their way they did absolutely did and that that record is just unbelievable holy fuck it's wild how can he sing like that i mean it's and so lyrics. fucking cool. The and lyrics. lyrics are unbelievable. All of it's unbelievable. It's a perfect record. I mean, but again, like it took me, you know, and it's this way with most records, five, 10 listens to really start to be like, pick up on all that. And mm-hmm. I, 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 it's kind of embarrassing to say, but I'm not sure how many records I would ever give five listens to before i decided yeah. <laughs> ever again you know yeah oh it took so me years it, puts a, it, it 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 then it puts a pressure on artists to make their music so much more immediate and and like if it doesn't connect right away then and i, and I think that maybe i worry that sometimes it it has people take less chances 
doesn't have you taking less chances because your records are wild. <laughs> Believe me, if it was me in charge, we would be taking far less chances. It would be very, very like, all right, we need a dubstep part, a ska part, and a rap part. Let's work on this thing together, guys. Come on. <laughs> Should have been a software designer. Uh, how did the relationship with Lost and Found come about? So this is a funny thing about that. Okay, I they told me back then that Lost and Found bootlegged the demo <laughs> i i i came to find out very recently that that isn't what happened that that my brother and ken gave them permission to put the battery demo out but i was like not close with the, we were not an active band at the time mm -hmm. and i was doing ashes and i was at my brother and i are incredibly close now but we were not that close then and i wasn't very close to ken so they just kind of did it. And I didn't even know that they, that was happening. And I literally was in the vinyl link record store where I always went and I saw a battery CD and I was like, I mean, I'm going to date myself here. It was so long ago that I didn't even own a CD player yet. <laughs> it was like at a time when the, the CD part of the record store was like a two foot long shelf. <laughs> and there was a battery CD with these like weird fucking dudes hanging upside down. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? And then it was our songs. So, uh, I, I, so the guy had originally, I, this is my understanding, ordered seven inches from my brother to sell wholesale through his distro over there. Is that the damaged AD for seven inch that Tim put out? No, this was the, the, the battery. Oh, the battery. I'm sorry. Yeah. We did a battery seven inch in 91. Yes. Um, I'm blue and, too. Yes. And uh, my brother, I, I guess he, he, the guy from Lost and Found said, people really like this here. I'd like to put it out. And they said, yes. And so the, the crazy thing that happened was that I had just, I was about to drop out of school. I was doing really bad in school. And um, the guy from Lost and Found said, I put this record out and people love it and are buying it like crazy. Do you guys want to make another record and come over here and tour? So I dropped out of high school. We got in the fucking car, went to Atlanta and recorded Only the Die Hard Remain in like two days. And then went to Germany <laughs> Wow! in 1994 and fucking, I mean, th it was a fucking wild time. Like our first, so I was telling you before that like Gorilla Biscuits was like 250 people in a big show. Well, I had never really been to the first battery show in Europe was 800 people. <laughs> and I had never been to a hardcore show that big in my life at that yeah. time. And I literally was like, holy fuck, we're biggest band in the world. And then the next night, two people came. <laughs> 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 so it was just all over the place. I mean, we were like, we would play and then they'd put cots on the floor in the room we just played. And, and this is back when people smoked heavily in the venues. Yeah, and we Europe. would sleep on the floor. Yeah, and then one night we were staying in this squat, and there were wild dogs, so they locked us in. And I had to like pee on the floor <laughs> with everybody sleeping in the room. 
it was just crazy. But so I guess circling back to the lost and found thing is I have very mixed feelings about it because it's probably the best label I've ever been on in terms of promoting the band and like really like, you know, really like we, you would never open a music magazine in Europe and not see like a full page battery ad every single night on tour interviews were set up. There were posters ever. I mean, they were like promotion wise, they were unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And, and the band went on to do very, very, very well in Europe. And, um, but we never got a royalty statement. I mean, we put three full lengths out with them and we never got one statement ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like not, not even a, hey, you owe us this much money. Like they were not like, it was one of those things where it was like, it, they're ripping us off, but we're benefiting from it by being a popular band that can tour and do all this cool shit. It's also kind of what it was like, I think, in hardcore a little bit until more of the more modern times almost where you just were like, you know, you're like, oh, we'll put out this record. We're probably never going to get paid or see any copies. Maybe we'll get our initial copies, but who knows? It might be in print forever. And yeah, there's there's so many labels that operated like that back then, not just Lost and Fan, which is infamous for it, but like American DIY labels, too. Well, so the interesting thing with Lost and Found is, and I never knew because the whole thing that my brother has since told me about how the battery record came together, I always thought everything on Lost and Found was a bootleg, but maybe it wasn't. I know. I always thought they like always found like one person that may or may not have actually been the songwriter or even in the band in some cases that had the master and that was how it came about. But like, I've always wondered because it, did you ever have to take shit from older bands like that were finding yes, it? Yes, yes. We I mean we would get heckled like crazy at the shows too. Like people would be like fucking sellouts and you know. <laughs> it's like I'm sleeping on this floor after you leave, sir. I don't know if I, I sold that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And uh and and it was it was very split and you know people were you know the the band was popular but then you know Europe is political and i think that people thought that we were like selling out and 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 ultimately that led us to not stay you know the last battery record we just we didn't do with lost and found but the thing is we should have because Mm. i mean i love revelation but it's like it was the contrast between like what the two labels did for the band was night and day i mean it was like the last battery record essentially never came out in Europe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then, and the, the, all that promotion, all the publicity, all that, like none of that, none of that happened. So like the two, I think the only two like bands that were like on lost and found proper were battery and ignite. And, Mm -hmm. and then during that time, I mean, we were two of the, I mean, big popular bands over there, like, we, we would go and, you know, the shows would be like anywhere from like 500 to 2,500 people and they'd be packed. The merch sales were crazy, but we did stupid shit. Like we did a two month long European tour. <laughs> like who does that? Fans do. And it's always a mistake. It always seems like a great idea at the start. Oh, it was the stupidest fucking thing that you, I mean, I, I, I don't know, but 
all that being said, it's interesting now with Europe because I think that people have like kind of rethought about like re-examined Lost and Found. And I think that there are a lot of people that are part of the music community over there now that really got into hardcore and punk through Lost and Found. They really were a gateway for people to get that music. And, you know, as sucky as it is for artists to not get paid, I mean... I, my life was changed by what that label did for my band. Yeah. And like you're saying, it's really weird. Cause like that period where you guys signed a revelation, it's like better than a thousand yourselves speak in my eyes. And that's kind of like revelation coming back. But prior to that, there, right. there wasn't like a lot of time spent, like they weren't reissuing this catalog stuff. So a lot of that stuff, the only way you'd find it in print was because, you know, the side-by-side bootleg happened in Europe or something happened in Europe and you could get that CD. So it really kept that stuff going in a lot of ways for younger kids. I I think so for sure. And it's, I mean, it was really cool. Like the last battery tour we did over there, um, you know, all these dudes would come out wearing their old lost and found shirt. Like they still, yeah. And what's funny is um, I was always fucking horrified by the merch we had (laughs) Uh, like horrified but now it's like all those bright colors and all that that shit is like in the big print and that's what people want now yeah you know it's like crazy to me um like on our last tour we remade it was like a 25 year anniversary thing so we remade the like orange and purple shirt that i would have not been caught dead with and we couldn't print enough of them. Oh, like yeah. people just wanted it, you know, orange I, and purple. With the, the the orange and purple only the Dyer Remain shirt with the yeah, long sleeves. Yeah, one of the yeah. best shirts ever. One of the best shirts ever. That shirt, yeah. like, oh, uh, I'll send, I'll get you one. Yeah, <laughs> um. <laughs> I'll be very grateful for that because I, I think, uh, well, that was a, that was the thing. I remember there was I, can't, I wish I could remember her name. There was a columnist in Maximum Rock and Roll that roadied for you guys one time in Europe. Sarah, Sarah, and I remember reading yes. her tour diary in there and just hearing these tales of these shows you guys are playing with thousands of people. Cause up yeah. until that point, I'm like, why do they never tour like, well, Canada, but I mean, North America, like, why are they never here? Right. And then you read that you're like, Oh, makes a lot of sense yeah. why they'd be over there. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we, I, I, relative to the other kind of youth crew bands, we did do a fair amount of touring here. We just did a shitload of touring there. You know, yeah, yeah, like an unusually large amount of touring in Europe. But the thing about it is that I love Europe. I mean, I, I think I love the cities. I love being there. The venues are all nice. They, they, they don't, they're not like, I mean, when you go to Europe now, you're still playing the same places we fucking played 25 years ago. And I love that. It's just, I think when you have stability with venues, music scenes thrive. And also like you guys are kind of like the first and I guess Ignite too, but like the first wave of American bands kind of going over there and doing it consistently on like a DIY level, like really kind of, I guess, building the scene that like kind of is still there to this day. Yeah. And the the coolest thing about Europe is like how many of, um, how many of the people that we knew back then are still so active Hmm. in the punk and hardcore scene like i think it's a little bit i think it's notably more so than it is here but i think a big part of that is those venues are often like 
youth centers where they wouldn't just go to shows. That's where they would like hang out after school. And like, you know, no, some of my friends, like now their kids are hanging out at those youth centers, you know, yeah. like Coney Island in Leipzig, you know, like yeah. Yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's, it's cool. And it's, 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 um, I, I think also like Europe is a lot less fickle than the U S you know, like here, it's kind of like, you make a record people don't really like, and they just move the fuck on. In Germany, you make a record that people don't like, they're going to come and be like, the new record, not so good. They'll let <laughs> you know. But they're there. They're there. <laughs> but no, they're there. Yeah. But they're there, and they're buying a purple T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, you mentioned Coney Island, Leipzig, and that was exactly what I was picturing when you are talking about these generational venues that have been there. Yeah. When you guys are first in Europe, how, like, what is it, 93, 94 you're there? 94, 94, yep. What was it like, like going early 94? Yeah. So what was it like going to Eastern Europe at that point? Because it would have been real crazy. Yeah. Like the wall was, you know, down, but not that long. And like, I mean, I just remember like some like, you know, like Prague and like Slovakia, like it was just, you know, you still had the, like all the old, like, you know, Soviet cars and, it it wasn't it wasn't built up at all the way that it is now but and a lot of those venues that are now like functional like kind of like important places were just squats you know they were just like you know i think that um coney island had been like a hitler youth camp or something yeah i think i find that most of the times unfortunately when you're playing germany you're playing some huge old building and they explain what it was during the second world war and you're like oh this adds a whole new dimension to having to play here now yeah yeah so but i think that like you know that that stability of like the places and even like the booking agents i mean it's all just like the same people doing the shit and i i think that it contributes to that being a very you know not for every band but like for a lot of bands europe is a much more predictable place to tour than the u.s is i wonder if it's because it's more cut off from sort of mainstream music than we are in North America. Like here, there's like always the option of leveling up and going into something slightly more mainstream or slightly something like some other part of the music business, because it is so much more connected to kind of like the general music biz than in Europe. Like maybe it's different over there. Maybe it's not but just, I wonder, cause like you don't really see, well, maybe there are, maybe that I just don't know about it, but like, you know, it, it seems like there's a lot more in North America of people that wind up producing, the Ariana Grande record that used to be in a hardcore band or like, yeah. like that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. I think just like the, I think there's, there are a couple of things that like, like, I think that like the, the festival scene in Europe is so healthy and the, the, the European countries do so much to promote the arts and that they're able to pay people well when they play. I think it's just a more sustainable place to make to be able to have some sort of livelihood making art where you don't have to go mainstream to do it. But mm -hmm. I could be wrong. I mean, I don't know. I just, I just know that like all of the people, like so many of the people I deal with today over there are like the same people from 1994, <laughs> which is awesome. 
Well, I could talk to you from now till 2094 and still have more questions and more things to talk about. Will you come back for a part two at some point, Brian? Yes, absolutely. But before I let you go, I wanted to always ask you, what did it feel like for you? And I know this is towards the end of Battery, but when that Youth Crew revival kind of happens, because there is that period where you guys, you guys were right. Like that kind of music did come back and, and arguably kind of stays back. Um, you know, this is my, this is going to, I don't mean this to say like, like to sound negative about some of those bands, but that era of the kind of youth crew revival, I thought it was cool, but I felt a little disconnected from what like the lyrics were about with some of those bands. It was like a little bit of like, it was like, I loved the style of the bands, but I kind of at times wish that there was more being said, not just like singing about the scene and straight edge. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I felt like it was maybe a little bit of a missed opportunity, but it was an exciting time. And it was, I mean, stylistically, I loved, I loved, I loved that stuff. Um, but I, I didn't, I, I don't know that a seven seconds came out of that, you know, like, a a timeless just like staple bit like you know genre defining band really came out of that that second revival you're right i think but i think it does lead to like you know a have heart later on down the line sure so i think that in that way but i totally see what you're saying it's almost like you know that's what i loved about judge was there's always a melancholy when mike judge was sad as much as he was angry like you could feel he was crying on some of those tracks and that kind of left i mean his his lyrics were just so vulnerable i mean it's so funny because like the band i'm doing now like judge is such a huge influence but i don't think most people would ever like draw that line because he's so tough Mm. but like you dig into that like a man like that saying i can't remember the last time i cried like yeah (laughs) still like you're like wow like he 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 and he was it's funny if you hear interviews with him he's such an emotional guy and it's like he just did such an amazing job of um of translating that emotion through the lyrics and the and the vocal performance like you said like you can you can feel that um but but the like the second wave of that i think there were some really cool bands i just don't there wasn't like another gorilla biscuits there wasn't yeah. another judge, you know, like, and I think that with the talent pool that existed, there could have been, but I think you're right. That did lead to like, you know, have heart and some really, I mean, you know, and now there's have heart has led to anxious and, and, and one step closer in this new wave of, of, of bands. So, I mean, the thread is there and it's, it's, it's really cool. Yeah. No, it's amazing. And, and, and I trace it back to you, Brian. I trace it back to you, my friend. <laughs> well, thank you. And I appreciate you having me on. This was a real treat. And we'll, yeah, we'll do part two someday. Thank you, Brian, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, there's a lot more to talk about. So Brian will be back for a part two in the near future. Because, uh, you know, that was a lot of fun. So I got, finally got to have that conversation with him. All right, speaking of fun, coming up on the next episode of Turned Out a Punk, you heard me and my buddy Peaches waxing about this person on Peaches' episode two weeks ago, 
And now, coming up on Turned Out of Punk to celebrate the premiere of his new documentary, Tramps, which is the centerpiece gala at this year's Inside Out Film Festival, Kevin Heggie will be on the show. Kevin also did a fantastic documentary about the great fifth column. And uh, I've wanted to talk to Kevin for a very long time for, for a lot of, you know, I, I want to catch up with Kevin because, you know, Kevin's my friend in real life, but also talked to Kevin for the show for a very long time. And now it is finally happening. You can find out more information about Tramps by, uh, you know, just Googling once again, <laughs> Tramps uh, film documentary and the premiere. There's going to be a virtual screening on Tuesday, May 31st. And if you are a fan of this podcast, you need to see this documentary. This is an essential kind of piece of the puzzle for fans of this music. Um, you know, we'll talk about it a lot more with Kevin on the next episode of the show, which should be coming out Friday, probably Friday. So a few days from now, and that is it for me. Remember as always black lives matter. The lives of indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths and people, different nationalities and different beliefs and, just knock all that fascist bullshit out because uh, it, it doesn't help anyone. We're not talking about political issues here. We're talking about basic human rights shit. So go out there and find organizations that you believe in, get involved, lend your voice, and try and try and bring about positive change to this world because we can, you and me, will make the difference, you know? Uh, so go out there and <laughs> that's, I tell you, youth crew, it always comes through, youth crew. Go out there and try and make some positive change in this world. This podcast remains a pro-choice podcast. Uh, we support what people want to do with their reproductive systems, whatever that is. Uh, weird that you have to keep saying that, but, you know, this stuff's under attack right now. Look around. And I'm not just talking about in the U.S. It's under attack here in Canada, too. Uh, so, uh, you know, maybe, maybe do something positive like going out there and making your own culture. Because anyone can do this stuff. You know, punk is a culture that's best served by, you know, you producing your own thing of it. If you don't see what you want to see in it, you know, make it, you know, start a band, start a fanzine, start a label, just do something. Anyone can do something. Everyone can do something. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe just draw a picture for yourself, you know, cause you don't have to make something super grandiose, you know, maybe it's just, you know, making something for yourself. It might make you feel better. Speaking about feeling better, try meditation. I didn't really know about this or believe in it, but now I do. Well, I don't know about it, but I believe in it now. So it can help you. It might help your, uh, you deal with stress, anxiety, all sorts of stuff. So, you know, I, you know, and this is coming from me. Someone that really didn't believe in it. And now I do. So go out there and, uh, and try some meditating. Uh, speaking of doing stuff, sign your organ donor cards, because by the time they're looking for those organs, they're dead weight. So just sign them away. Let them help someone else. I think that is that. I will see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening. Bye.